Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that Vanguard Group held preliminary talks with private equity firms as it considers offering alternative investments to its clients. To get the latest, we turn to Eric Balchunas. Uh, Eric is a senior ETF analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence based in Princeton, New Jersey. Eric, thanks so much for joining us. What do you think Vanguard is doing here as it takes a look at the private equity space? Yeah, I think a lot of people, when they first look at this, they think they're going to offer mutual funds, right, for the, the masses. But this is a little different. What this story really taps into, in my opinion, is the growing advisory business of Vanguard. Vanguard has $5 trillion, a uh, little more than that, actually, in fund assets, but it's only got about $100 billion in advisory assets. This is money that it uh, gives it, you know, tax advice, manages your portfolio, but that's a growing business of theirs. And what they're, what they're looking at is, hey, we're advisors now, and we offer, obviously, exposure to public markets. But we see that there's uh, less uh, companies going public. They're waiting longer. Private equity is where there's a lot of uh, wealth to be made. Potentially, we could offer this to those clients, at least the ones that pass the accredited investor test, which most retail investors, I think, that use Vanguard would. Uh, and so it's, in my opinion, pretty logical. The private equity market is expected to grow. They're skating to where the puck will be. The interesting part is, will they be able to offer it in Vanguardian fees. Right now, private equity fund could be 1% to 2%, if not more. Vanguard is used to offering funds at 10 basis points. So yeah. that's a big question mark. But uh, certainly, it's not surprising, especially in, in the post-Vogel. Vogel, Vanguard is a little more aggressive. Well, I want to pick up on exactly that point, the whole concept of fees here, because Vanguard is the indexing giant. They're really the ones uh, with John Bogle, uh, who really came up with the idea of a low fee type of fund that just tried to track the market performance. Uh, they arguably have been responsible for what we've seen across the asset management industry, uh, with a lot of the firms facing a lot of pr pressures due to those lowered fees. Will Vanguard do the same thing to private equity? So, yeah, I think they could start that ball rolling. Uh, you know, what's interesting is Vanguard has this situation where they offer active mutual funds, and about half of the $1.3 they have in active mutual fund assets is sub-advised. I think they could do something similar here. But what's interesting about those active mutual fund assets is that the asset-weighted average fee is about 20 basis points. So they figured out a way to get active cheap. They probably do the same thing with private equity. They're just not going to offer something expensive. Now, the question is, let's say they start doing this and they offer a fund for private equity that's, say, 40 basis points or something. Um, yeah, I think that could start to create what we call this the Vanguard effect. It's not just Vanguard offering it cheap. It's that they force others in the neighborhood to lower their fees. That's just been going on in ETFs and funds for the last 20, 30 years. So yeah, I think it could be something. It just probably is going to take uh, quite a while. Again, given that the advisory assets they have is only about $100 billion. So that's why this is going to be a very slow process. But look, I've looked at the fees. They're kind of ripe for disruption, I would say. And Vanguard is the king of disruptors in asset management. So that brings me to my question. What has been the response 
uh, from the private equity community today? Because when Vanguard, you know, starts looking at, you know, your business, much like when Amazon looks at, uh, you know, a certain business, whether it's retail or groceries, competitors take notice. Yeah, I, I, I've been looking on Twitter at some of the reaction. I think a lot of people think, first of all, do you really want Vanguard type investors in illiquid, uh, you know, uh, funds? That's one thing. I don't. I think a lot of the best private equity and the best hedge funds, because remember, Vanguard offers hedge fund type uh, alternative strategies in mutual funds already. So they they, they do all. Uh, they, they haven't really you know completely disrupted the hedge fund business with that. So I don't think there's a lot of fear. I don't think there should be a lot of fear. Again, just like with mutual funds, if you're good and you got something good going on, you'll be able to charge for it. So I think for the ones that might not be as good or might just be mediocre. Those are the ones that probably should be worried about about being priced out or priced down by a Vanguard. Just real quick, how much could this potentially be an effort of Vanguard to boost its own uh, profits? I don't think it's much. I really think Vanguard is playing a different game. They just are not like other companies. Generally, that's the DNA of Vogel still in there, the mutual ownership structure. I just think they're really Boy Scout in their nature, and they just want to serve their clients, and they feel like private equity is something that would be missing from a client portfolio in the future. Eric Balchunas, thank you so much for being with us and sharing that perspective. Eric Balchunas, a senior ETF analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. New York State has passed some of the most sweeping uh, overhauls to rent and property legislation uh, in its history, having some pretty big ripple effects uh, throughout the real estate market. Joining us now to discuss Francis Greenberger, chairman and chief executive officer of Time Equities Incorporated based in New York City. So New York State agreed to strengthen rent laws and tenant protections. From your perspective, what are the most important parts of this legislation? Well, I think the legislation represents very bad social and economic policy for the city and state, and I'm happy to tell you why. Uh, politically, it's be, the narrative is that it's protecting 1.3 million tenants, but it really isn't because all of those tenants are rent-stabilized, and they were protected against under existing law, and the increases for the last five years have ranged between 0 and 1%. Uh, now, the part that is being affected are the few people that choose to leave those apartments, and it's about the new tenants who come in. Under the prior law, there were incentives for fixing up those apartments. There were extra increases, which gave the owners some balance to pay the increased expenses in operating taxes and taxes, which were not being covered by the 0 or 1% rent allowance for existing tenants. So it was a, it was, there was a certain amount of balance that has been lost, and now owners will simply face increasing losses every year. So That's not good economic policy. So what is your expectation about what this new rent law will do to the value of housing? I think it will dramatically de- decrease the value of housing, which will have another effect, which is that it will erode the city's tax base. The city needs those taxes. So what are they going to do? They're going to increase the taxes on people who own their own homes, whether they're co-op, condominiums, or private houses. They will have to subsidize 
these few thousand apartments that we're turning over and providing the economic lifeline for rental housing. So, Francis, just walk us through how it would dramatically lower property values in in New York City. Well, if you buy a property where you expect your income to go down every year instead of stay the same or go up, you're obviously going to pay a lot less for it. Well, I guess the one question that I have is there's one thing about buying an apartment building in order to rent out the individual units. It's another thing if you have a condominium uh, building and you sell units to people, there's a question of whether there might be a greater demand for the condominium type units if you are going to guarantee a certain degree of maintenance, et cetera, that might be uh, sort of left behind a little bit on the rental units due to fee pressures. Well, clearly, the future of rental housing uh, and the maintenance of it uh, um, is in doubt because when owners don't have income to pay the costs, where's the money going to come from? We see that in the in the housing that the that the government owns, the NYCHA housing, and what a disaster that is because they have base basically starved it in this case their own revenue streams and didn't do the necessary repairs. So yes, condominium or co-op housing will be superior in the event in the sense that it will be uh, um, better maintained. On the other hand, those are the people who are going to be picking up the bill for the uh, um, for for taking away this income stream and tax base uh, on rent on the rental housing side. Another potential effect here is that as the situation increases. Uh, and again, I think it's really very important to focus on the fact that this law really affects a few thousand apartments that turn over every year and were then being rented uh, at, at uh, uh, significant increases or, uh, um, so, you know, so, 20, they used to allow 20 percent increases. So, um, so, so and by taking that away, it may force increases on the people that are stabilized tenants in place, where, as I said, current law has left those increases at zero or one percent. So those people may also have to pick up the bill. This is a complete disbalancing of what previously was a working solution. So, Francis, how will this impact your investing across, say, New York City? Well, I think that's the other thing. Uh, um, again, as I said, there was a semi-balanced picture before, and now the political process has taken that away, which means that in the eyes of business people and investors like me, the state and the city are no longer reliable partners. And I think any person who invested with people who turned out to be unreliable certainly wouldn't come back and reinvest. So I think you're going to see more and more people uh, um, turning their investments to states that have a more reliable pattern of uh, and fair pattern of treating uh, business and investors in their in their states so, uh, fairly. So, Francis, which states are you turning your sights to instead of New York uh, when it comes to investing? Well, we're currently we're just started a construction project in Florida. We just finished one in Michigan, uh, in a place called Grand Rapids. Uh, we are about to begin one in Chicago. So it, from your perspective, is this something that, again, it seems like it's a relatively uh, low number of units we're talking about across 
you know, a, a big market. It, I mean, is the material, it just doesn't seem that material to the overall economics of real estate in this market. Well, I think in addition, it, as I say, it disturbed the balance that existed between allowing existing tenants zero or 1% increases and still allowing landlords to maintain, not increase their profit margins, but they were able to pay the increased expenses out of the increased rents on the vacancies. So that has been taken away, and landlords have been left with a losing proposition. You know, that leaves a very bitter taste in people's minds and, and, and in their investment intentions. And just like the Amazon uh, reaction to politics in New York was negative, I think you're going to see this spread. And this is a, a second uh, nail in the uh, um, uh, in, in the coffin, so to speak. So, Francis, just, just just real quick here, how much do you policy. how much do you expect prices to go down in New York City? Uh, you know, uh, um, real estate often trades on futures rather than existing, and this has taken away the the future, the hope for something better, and it's. And it's replaced it with with an expectation of something worse. Is that a 25% reduction? Is it more? I'm not sure. The market will tell wow. the story. Okay, 25% reduction. That would be news. Uh, Francis Greenberger. The value of all rental housing in New York. Yep. Francis Greenberger, Chairman and CEO of Time Equities, Inc. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, about a year after shuttering its U.S. operations, Toys R Us is back. To get a sense of what's going on there, we welcome our good friend, Bert Flickinger, Managing Director of Strategic Resource Group, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So correct me if I'm wrong, Bert. So the U.S. business of Toys R Us uh, shuttered their operations about a year ago, but now they're coming back. How are they doing that? Coming back uh, with a couple stores, uh, but it's already a proven concept in that they have scores of stores that are very successful, Asia, India, parts of Europe. And it was affirmed uh, by Kroger, Fred Meyer, brilliant CEO, Rodney McMullen, that put 600 Jeffrey, Jeffrey's Toy Box, Toys R Us, uh, departments and uh, stores within the Kroger stores, which are doing tremendously well. The other key uh, comparable on the Bloomberg Terminal is that uh, toys have catalyzed a big part of uh, Walmart, Target, and Amazon's growth. And on a total return basis in the last year, uh, Walmart and Target are both up about 40%, Amazon about the same, and compared to the XRT or the S&P retail index is barely up at all. And they still can't handle, the, uh, the big box stores still can't handle the demand of the 10 billion that Toys R Us did in the U.S. retail. So it sounds like uh, Richard Berry has come up with this concept uh, of reincarnating Toys R Us uh, with smaller stores, but some of the same footprints, uh, shrunken footprints, because he saw an opportunity there that was still being unmet by the big box retailers. My question is, uh, what what exactly is this reincarnation? Is it just taking the name and then re-envisioning the modern toy store? Or is this basically just uh, restarting without the debt? 
Lisa, it's both. Uh, restarting without the debt that's key and the uh, landlords of the major malls will pay for the uh, fit out, a lot of the equipment build out, so there'll be next to no uh, capital commitment. But the key thing you referenced is the name. Uh, they'll have the name. The stores were about 15 years behind, uh, caught in a boa constrictor, uh, proverbial chokehold from Vornado and, and the original legacy owners. And now with Richard Berry, it's the chief merchant who goes all the way back to the seminal genius, Charles Lazarus, who uh, started Toys R Us and built it into a worldwide powerhouse. Barry knows how to merchandise the stores, work with Disney, Marvel, uh, Lucas Studios uh, for the licensed goods, but also to make the stores exciting from a digital interactive standpoint. So they'll have the name, but the stores will catch up about 15 years because they'll have uh, the capital along with the uh, skill and hopefully the scale. So, Bert, what I understand about this is Toys R Us is looking to open about a maybe a half a dozen stores for the holiday season. Do you think this might just be the first step in maybe bringing back Toys R Us in a bigger way in the U.S.? Yes, the first step, and and our research indicates with mall support, they'll be able to do at least 50, likely 100-plus stores in the major malls across the U.S., which would love to have Toys R Us and Babies R Us as a co-anchor. And what's interesting from our research is Amazon has an Achilles heel in this thing, too, is Amazon's almost de facto price gouging on anything that's either heavier weight or large in shipping size. So if it's a baby crib or or baby stroller, Amazon will charge $100 more delivered to Amazon Prime members than, say, even Albies on the west side of Manhattan or any other major toy retailer in the U.S. So there's a lot of room with the support from uh, Jack's, uh, Marvel, Marvel, Hasbro, the studios, and the hard lines and soft lines vendors. And also, Amazon went bankrupt with Diapers or Us. So there's a big window for Toys R Us to reestablish itself. One thing you talked about was reimagining the stores and making them more enticing to uh, the modern child, which means having uh, all sorts of electronics there. I'm just wondering what type of investment uh, they really need to get these stores into a shape to be an experience, which really is the name of the game in retail right now perfect variable you're referencing, Lisa. If it's an investment on Toys R Us's part, it could be a million plus per store. If they get the support of Disney behind Star Wars, uh, Frozen, future uh, Toy Story uh, releases, Kung Fu Panda, whatever it is, and get the studios to co-invest and ideally get somebody like uh, Bob Pittman at Clear Channel Outdoor to use their skill outside on the air rights of the store, the walls, and the departments inside the store could be spectacular. Would would the uh, the actual vendors, the toy vendors, would they prefer to do business with Toys R Us over, say, Amazon or Walmart? I definitely prefer to do business with Toys R Us over Amazon. Uh, going back to the Hachette Books uh, antitrust case for uh, anti-competitive practices, potential predatory pricing, that seems to be ubiquitous uh, beyond books to toys, et cetera. Uh, Walmart under Doug McMillan, Target under uh, Brian Cornell are more enlightened buyers, but they don't have the physical space in the stores to carry the full depth and range of toys. So the vendors are seeing a lot of growth with Macy's committing a full floor at Herald Square to Toys and some of the other stores, but nobody can do it like Toys R Us and Richard Berry. The one variable is David Pico, who is the genius of 
real estate strategy and development got picked off by Chris Baldwin and his team to go to BJ's Wholesale. So Toys R Us is skating shorthanded with a key player on the development side. But Richard Berry's brilliant, and he'll break through with this format, uh, to Paul's point, on, on a very strong continuum of future growth. Really interesting to see uh, the revival here of, of, frankly, brick and mortar. Uh, Bert Flickinger, thank you so much for being with us. Always a pleasure. Bert Flickinger is Managing Director for Strategic Resource Group. Many companies are developing products to reduce sugar intake by consumers. One such company is Dumatak, an Israeli startup that has created a sugar reduction solution that uses targeted delivery technology to reduce the amount of sugar used up to 40% per serving. To help us dig into the details of this new company, we welcome Aaron Baniel, Chief Executive Officer and President of Dumatak, uh, based in Israel. Uh, Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. I wonder if you could just briefly kind of tell us kind of what is the solution uh, that your company has uh, that reduces the sugar intake? So nice to be with you guys. Uh, when you take a bite into a cake, say, uh, over 80% of the sugar in the cake will never see a sweet receptor. So it contributes nothing towards the sweetness of the product. So only 20% would probably hit receptors. What we do is by loading the sugar onto a mineral or a fiber carrier, we actually create clusters of sugar molecules and when those hit the receptors, they, get, they stick to the receptors longer and they keep pumping sugar molecules to the receptors, sort of cheating you to uh, experience a sweetness that is disproportionate to the amount of sugar in the cake or in the biscuit or in the chocolate. So you literally use less to taste more. That is flavor delivery improved uh, in eff efficacy. So uh, the result of this, uh, if I am correct, is that you can reduce uh, by more than 40% the sugar content in some of these sweets or other products uh, by using your technologies. I'm wondering, have there been any big companies that have adopted some of your techniques? So we are now in the process of uh, providing large pilots to some of those large CPGs, um, taking existing products and making the Dumatok version of the product, which would be not only reduced in sugar, but also rich in fiber and rich uh, often in proteins. So we also have developed a, a whole host of data on how you can replace the 40% of sugar you've taken out uh, with uh, really much better for you nutrition and actually in blind tastings, consumers seem to prefer 
the Dumatok reduced version to the original products. So we started by wanting to be as sweet. We are now understanding that we are very often preferred and we seem to fare better than the original. So that's really uh, the first time that someone that we are aware of can propose a sugar-reduced version of products that don't disrupt the need we have for indulgences, for the products we love. So is this going to be another colored packet, packet of sweeteners in the bowl when I go to a restaurant? I've got pink, I've got blue, I've got yellow. Is this going to be another? Are those your competitors? No. no. What the existing sugar reductions are not sugar-based. We are sugar-based. And sugar is not, it's not bad for you un, unless you over, overdo it. So sugar, uh, if you consume sugar in measured uh, quantities, you're fine. It gives you energy, it's bulk, it's taste, it's color, it's happiness. Sugar is happiness, but <laughs> only if consumed as recommended. So what we do is we actually allow you to consume the products you love without actually overdoing the sugar intake. Iran, one question that I have is people have found that sugar replacements actually don't necessarily uh, contribute to weight loss because people feel hungrier, their bodies feel like they're going to be getting a certain amount of sugar, so they eat more to compensate for that. Has there been any study done in a similar uh, vein with Dumatok? It's a very good question, and thank you for asking it. We are uh, uh, the the funding is there amongst others to fund much larger trials than we've done. But one of the mode of actions that we have uh, developed is called mucoadhesive. The area of the tongue is the best, probably, area for dispersing uh, in a very uh, a sane way uh, things like sugars, but also people, it's been used for pharmaceuticals as well. So what we actually do is we have this uh, cluster, let's say, of sweetness come to the receptor, it sticks by the receptor longer, yeah. and, and the sweetness is very satisfying. So you don't really reach out for another bite so quickly. Yeah. You are really getting the full beauty of the sweetness with the first bite, and you are not rushing into another, uh, the second, third, etc. Eran Vaniel, thank you so much for being with us. Chief Executive Officer and President of Duma Talk, based in Israel. Uh, they just raised $22 million in a Series B round funding. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.